Syria reinstated back into the Arab League a week after about Saudi Arabia and Syria normalizing ties. And you both have talked about it and I've talked about here the flurry of developments largely relating to Saudi Arabia and its posture and orientation toward Russia. And then you've also had like Turkey-Syria negotiations, the Iran-Saudi Arabia deal in Beijing. So many developments that have caused pretty much a a seismic shift in the Middle East, uh, politically, militarily, economically. But this is pretty big news. Assad, Bashar al-Assad being able to go to the Arab League for the first time in more than 12 years. Like, your thoughts on this, what does it signify? Because to be honest, uh, from my assessment of the mainstream media landscape in the collective West, it's been pretty quiet. Uh, there's, of course, been anger about it and, uh, you know, a lot of John Kirby saying that's not good, but it really hasn't been a story. Well, just just to say, first of all, that this is huge news. I mean, if you, you know, it's extraordinary how little there is talk about this, because, of course, five years ago, the Syrian war was the big, big international news story. I mean, this is the most important thing. And now we've lost because the whole point, I say we, I mean, people, you know, the collective West has lost because they made this huge effort to overthrow the president of Syria, change the government there, create a completely new situation in Syria as part of this project for the new Middle East. And it's failed and it's failed utterly. So what do we do? We don't talk about it. We have a few angry articles in a few places. There was a particularly deranged one by one of our commentators here in Britain, Simon Tisdall, who says, you know, we should have gone in all guns blazing and all that. But apart from him and a few people like that, the basic line is silence. We don't want to talk about it. That was the war we lost. We now move on to the next one, which is Ukraine. And of course, if the Ukraine war isn't successful, well, we're going to do the same. That Politico article I was talking about, before, which said, you know, politically palatable solution. One of the reasons why they were talking about freezing the conflict as a politically palatable solution, and it actually says it in the Politico article, is because that way people will forget it. (laughs) They will forget about the war in Ukraine, just as they've forgotten about the war in Syria. But because in the West we've forgotten about this war in Syria, we should not. It has been an extraordinary transformation. And it has happened for multiple reasons. One, because of the Syrian government's resilience and that of President Assad, and we should not overlook that. The second is because of the Russian intervention. The third is because of the influence of China and the effect that that is having. And for me, perhaps the most striking comment that has been made about this event was one that appeared in an editorial in Global Times, which obviously Assad's rehabilitation is a sign of the decline of American influence in the Middle East. And Global Times said, as the shadow of America withdraws, the dawn of peace 
in the Middle East comes. And that was a pretty remarkable thing to see. And it's true. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree with, with everything Alexander said. A, a thought just came in, in, into my mind. I wouldn't be shocked if part of the reason to, to get Alensky to, to Saudi Arabia, to the Arab League, was so that they can present an alternative narrative to Assad at the Arab League so that the, the collective West Mainstream media can run with stories about Zelensky at the Arab League and can conveniently ignore having to cover Assad at the Arab League. I wouldn't be surprised if there was some sort of thinking there at the uh, at the State Department with with Alensky accepting the invitation to to go to the Arab League in order to to conveniently ignore uh, Assad's presence uh, there. You know, uh, we forget about uh, Syria. We forget about Libya and what they did to Gaddafi. We forget about the fact that uh, I, I remember it very well. Uh, IS was was 18 kilometers from Damascus, but Assad was still there. Yeah. He didn't leave. He didn't flee. He wasn't traveling the world. He wasn't wearing a green sweatshirt and making green screen television appearances on Instagram or, or TikTok. He wasn't doing any of these stuff. He, he was there, and they were 18 kilometers away. And then I remember Russia – Russia said, okay, we, we have to do something. And not only Russia, Iran as well. Iran as well. I think Iran is, is the, is the missing piece to the puzzle because when you take BRICS, when you take China and Russia and India, South Africa, Brazil, but then you add in Iran, I think you've got a, a very powerful uh, block that the collective West is not going to be able to, to contend with. But, um, you know, the, the, the Syrian, uh, the Syrian military, Assad, the Russians, the, with the help of the Russians and the, uh, Iranians, they, uh, they pushed back, uh, ah, yes. And we can never forget that at the time, the collective West media was telling us that these were the, what was the term? The moderate rebels, the moderate rebels, right? The, the same script writing stuff that we see in, in Ukraine, all the same stuff. Obama's funding the moderate rebels. Okay, mm. if they're the moderate rebels, then they're okay. Of course, it was al-Qaeda and it was IS and it was all, all of these forces trying to overthrow Assad. And, mm. and then when Assad started to win and win decisively, what did you get? You got uh, uh, Ghouta and, and Duma and I don't know, Alexander, what were the other uh, chemical <laughs> yeah. attacks? And, and everyone was, was scratching their head going, why would Assad do that? When he's like right on the verge of completely annihilating uh, IS and Al Qaeda, why would he? Why would he do that to his own people? It doesn't make any sense. But you know, you trotted out the CNN reporter who was at some some camp or something, and she smells the backpack, and she goes, "Oh yeah, yeah, that's, there's chemicals on that backpack, no doubt about it." And everyone's like, "Oh my God, I can't believe this!" And Samantha Power was at the UN holding not uh, not Samantha Power what was her name uh, mm-hmm. uh, running for president. Right now, Nikki Haley. Uh, Nikki Haley. Nikki Haley. Yeah, right. she's there yeah. holding up pictures. The, the same exact copy paste stuff that you see in Ukraine, and the same exact copy paste stuff that they're going to push to to China and Taiwan. The same scripts, just change the names, you know, change a bit the scenarios and the locations, but the scripts are all the same. Yeah, and it, 
you know, these scripts are the same, but it seems like the outcomes now expose almost like this fragility, for lack of a better term, of, of, of American power in particular, because I want to play a quick video. It wasn't too long ago. This was just six years ago when you had people like Brian Williams. Let's see if the screen share volume will work. Was, you know, this is Trump was when he was uh, celebrated by the mainstream media. It was because his administration was, you know, f- sending missiles and rockets on on Syrian airfields. But Brian Williams, I don't know if you all remember this. This is how he described this is this is media, by the way, everybody. This is supposedly journalism, but just it's only a couple of seconds. Go into greater detail. We see these beautiful pictures at night from the decks of these two U.S. Navy vessels in the eastern Mediterranean. I am tempted to quote the great Leonard Cohen. I'm guided by the beauty of our weapons. Um, and they are beautiful pictures of, uh, of fearsome armaments making what is for them a brief flight over to this airfield. What did they hit? What are you convinced? So <laughs> the beauty of our weapons and what's so astounding about this is now fast forward six years later and this war seems to be all but lost for the United mm-hmm. States. Like this is, this is it really. And I'm not surprised, Alex, your point on kind of getting, <laughs> you got to get Zelensky somewhere. Why not have it have some benefit to the narrative uh, around the Arab League? But anyway, your thoughts on this? It's trajectory, you know, it's like U.S. wars aren't generally supposed to end like this. Absolutely. Well, this war is lost. And I think this is an important thing to understand. Assad being invited to the Arab League, Syria rejoining the Arab League is the end of the Syrian war. There are Turkish troops still in the north, but Turkey wants to withdraw them. This isn't just Erdogan. Every Turkish political leader wants to withdraw those troops from Syria and they will at some point be withdrawn. The only thing, the only remaining loose end which remains to be tied are the American troops in the eastern part of Syria. And sooner or later, they will go too. But the Syrian war is over and it has been won and won by Assad and by the Syrian government and by his allies in exactly the way that Alex was saying. So that's an important thing to say. So this is another war, if you like, that the neocons led America into and which has ended in failure. But can I just go back to what I was saying earlier in the program about how the end game can be very long? Because if you follow, track the events of the Syrian war carefully, you could see that essentially the war was won by Assad in 2017. That was when the siege of Aleppo ended. That was when, uh, um, you know, the resistance was broken. The Syrian army marched across the north of Syria all the way to the eastern border of Syria. And that should have been the end. That should have been the year when the war ended. And yet it has been prolonged all these six further years with sanctions, with pressure, with all sorts of attempts to keep it going. And that's the end game. The end game can be the longest, the most difficult, the most grueling part of a conflict. But ultimately, if you look at the conflict carefully, you can see that it was actually won in 2017.
Yeah, and I think that's what's going to happen with Ukraine as well. Yeah. I mean, the Russians are, are are going to win. I don't think there's any doubt about about the actual outcome of the conflict, but the collective West will will do as Alexander said. They're going to try to find a way to extend it, sanctions and freezing this and freezing that and overthrowing Zelensky and putting in a new guy, maybe putting in a guy after that. They'll figure out ways to try and extend uh, the conflict out. But the result is going to, to be the same. Yes. Yeah, this whole notion of freezing, you referenced that political article earlier, and freezing Ukraine, I mean... That that seems to be what the United States has attempted to do in Syria with the battleground kind of being settled in large respects. Uh, there's no more encroachments from the Northeast. Uh, it's either get out or stay. Uh, but then the sanctions that were piled on to Syria really did has hampered not just rebuilding, but of course, people's lives. Um, uh, very different from Russia. <laughs> Syria just you know, was already war-torn and in a really rough shape and then add on these Caesar sanctions and others and you have a really disastrous situation. So uh do you feel like this freeze idea, though, feels like an admission, like a, like a preempting, like unlike in Syria where there was a lot of like, let's let's keep going, let's push, let's see how Aleppo goes, Raqqa, et cetera. Let's see how these battles go. Let's see how our moderate rebels do. And when they failed, it was like, okay, yeah, now we can put the economic hurt even more onto Syria mm. to try to see if we can uh, prolong this thing. But this, like, and now, like, now that you have the Biden, you know, blob uh, talking about freezing, it feels like they're just they're predicting that that's just what they're going to have to do anyway, regardless of when they end up actually employing such a thing. Of course, that's exactly what it is. I mean, they, they are fundamentally deep down, they've understood that they can't win this war in Ukraine, just as probably they understood in 2017 that they couldn't win the war in Syria, that, you know, the force that the United States would have to exert in Syria was too great to change the um, dynamic to be politically acceptable in the United States. And of course, in Ukraine, it's even more so because we're up against the Russians who have more nuclear weapons than we have. So that, but of course, they are, they're always looking for a way to avoid accepting the outcome and at the same time, politically preserving themselves. So, Freezing the conflict is a way of prolonging the conflict. And that's the thing to understand about this. That's what it is. It's not about resolving it. It's not about finding a real resolution to the conflict, a proper settlement in Ukraine, and perhaps, horror of horrors, a re-examination of the security architecture of Europe. So freezing the conflict, which is what they're talking about, is actually a way of keeping it going. Now, Precisely for that reason, I don't think the Russians will agree. And in fact, Medvedev, who is Putin's number two on the Security Council and is in charge of Russia's military industries, he's actually come out and he's made a statement today saying that, you know, there really isn't any reason to talk at the present time. So let's not even think about these 
ideas of freezing the conflict. But we, we need to understand that that's what they're talking about. When they're talking about freezing the conflict, it's not about solving it. It's about prolonging it, prolonging it indefinitely. Hmm. Yeah, and Korea is not resolved. Yeah, and the, the comparison with Korea is not resolved, obviously, from all the news we always hear about yeah. denuclearization and putting in missiles and, you know, ICBMs and, you know, uh, yes. you know, thousands of troops in the South, U.S. troops in the South, just an armistice. Yeah, yeah, it's not resolved. So just even making that comparison, it's like that's a Cold War comparison. That that country was split yes. into two and that was the resolution. Yeah. But in the yes. Syria too, Syria didn't resolve to be occupied. You know, like they, yeah. their position has been since that battlefield yes. kind of settled has been you guys, you know, yes. Turkey, we need to eventually solve that. US, you all need to get out. You weren't invited anyway. Yes. <laughs> like, yes. um, so yeah, it does feel like a non resolution, but a permanent conflict, so to speak. Absolutely. Of course, the fundamental difference with Korea is that at the time of the Korean War, at the time of the ending of the Korean War, the United States was much, much more powerful than all of the other countries that were involved. It was far more powerful than the Soviet Union. It had only just lost its nuclear monopoly. And, of course, China was not remotely the force that it is in the world today. So you can't freeze the Ukrainian conflict in the way that you could freeze the Korean conflict. And for the Russians... It is too important. And why would the Russians want to freeze the conflict in, the Ukra- in Ukraine just to help the United States prolong it indefinitely in the way that some people in Washington want to do? And of course, the idea is you can also see this as well. Well, you know, the Russians won't agree, but we'll get the Chinese to do it for us. They'll put the pressure on the Russians and the Russians will that that way be forced to, uh, um, you know, do what we want. So we get the Chinese, in effect, to pull our coals out of the fire. Why would the Chinese do that? (laughs) Why would the Chinese want that kind of resolution in Ukraine, one which prolongs the conflict indefinitely? And in fact, if you go to the Chinese, to 12 points that the Chinese set out, you can see very clearly that they're looking beyond freezing the conflict they're talking about they're talking about things like you know the, the security of one country mustn't be achieved at the expense of others for example and that isn't about freezing conflicts or prolonging conflicts that is about solving them so it's a completely different way of thinking to the one that some people in washington are coming up with yeah i mean China, Russia, BRICS, <clears throat> India, South Africa, Iran coming into into this uh, this group. Uh, they're 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 playing the long game, and I think yeah. they're they're providing a, a much bigger solution than than what we're seeing in Syria, what we're even going to see play out in Ukraine, and and what could possibly happen in uh, in China and Taiwan. I think that they're. They're coming together and and they're providing a solution to to the problems that we've had over the past uh, couple of decades, which are these these endless wars, this chaos, the the, the problems in the Middle East. Um, all of these things are uh, are, are going to, or at least they're going to try to get resolved. And and we've gotten a taste of it a bit, you know, with Saudi Arabia yeah. and Iran. 
we've yeah. gotten a taste of what is possible now. And, and I think they're going to build on that. And so, you know, Syria back then when we were reporting on the war, you know, Syria seemed to be, you know, at this, at, at this alone. They had, they had Russia at their back. They had uh, Iran, you know, China was kind of there, but we couldn't really see the, the big picture back then. I think now with what everything that's going on in Ukraine, everybody can see the big picture and every country outside of the collective West can see the, the big picture. And, um, you know, it's, 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 it's inspiring countries and it's freeing up countries to, to understand that there, there is an alternative now and there's an alternative that's being built. And, yes. uh, you know, I think better days are, are ahead for, for Syria. Uh, and I think yeah. now Syria understands that they're coming out of this conflict with the collective West and they don't have to go back to the collective West. Now they can actually move in a completely new direction and they'll be able to get financing. They'll be able to get infrastructure built. They'll be able to, to trade. I mean, it's, it, you know, Syria is at the beginning of what could be a very, exciting future going forward absolutely can i just quickly add to all of that and alex is absolutely right one of the fundamental differences also with the 1950s is that people today can see that it is the united states as presently constituted that is the disruptor you can't persuade people around the world outside the collective west that it is otherwise so that is a fundamental change as well so coming back to what the Chinese editorial said, as the shadow of the United States recedes, the dawn of peace comes. Yeah, indeed, indeed. I mean, there's a, we didn't even get to get into all the ways in which BRICS has come under fire. South Africa has come under fire. This new currency under discussion. There's a lot of exciting things happening around the world. And it all points in the same direction. It really does in terms of uh, reversing, changing the outcomes of this unipolar order that the U.S. and its Western allies have been leading that has taken, of course, this world at the precipice of disaster. And, of course, uh, many people are living in utter disaster because of it already.